My name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. This month on the Northern Logger podcast, we're looking back into the past year and forward towards the unknown terrain of coming months. It seems like the appropriate thing to do now that 2019 has finally arrived. Eric Kingsley is a forest industry consultant here in the Northeast, and he's a contributing writer to the Northern Logger magazine. He wrote our cover story for our January issue. Uh, It covers trends for the coming year and a lot of things that you all might have been thinking about in your day-to-day work recently. He'll be our guide in this episode as we hear from other leaders in the wood products industry on everything from employment to the viability of biofuels in the coming year. Before we hear from Eric, I wanted to say that a lot has changed this year for me as well. I moved from New York City, from Queens, to the middle of the woods of upstate New York, and I started a new job, and I bought some land, some forest land, and built a house on that land, and I have been in the process simultaneously, professionally, of learning about forests and forestry and what logging is all about and then you know personally I've been living on this uh, acreage where um, uh, it has been heavily logged in the past and there's a lot of like treetops down and you know I'm like looking at this land and thinking about the future of it and simultaneously talking to a lot of people that know a lot more than me about what I'm looking at and so I think like the most surprising and rewarding aspect of, of the job really has been like the fact that it's something that is very um, connected to my life, not only in a professional way, but in a personal way. And that like the way that I get to know people who I talk to, you know, I, I don't only think of them as professional contacts. I think of them as people that like are friends and, um, you know, can like help in the development of like a a new kind of life that I'm leading. Happy New Year to every person who is listening. Now let's hear about the major trends in this new year that many in the industry say uh, is likely to be a successful one. Let's start by running through the strength of the paper, pulp, and wood products industry at the present moment and where it's headed. Eric had some thoughts on that subject. No surprise to any of your readers, but since 1999, New York and New England alone have lost 11 pulp mills. Uh, In the period 2014 to 2016, Maine lost, I'd have to go back and count, but five-ish mills with a total market size of somewhere in the neighborhood of a about 4 million tons when you think about the pulp wood and the biomass that goes in there. So it's been, it's been rough. We've lost mills in New York, uh, New Hampshire and Maine in the, you know, in this century, which, you know, it's 2019, the century is not that old. I think a lot of folks have thought for a while that that's just going to continue. And clearly uh, this doesn't mean that anyone's safe forever, but uh, pulp prices are up. The surviving mills, many of them have made significant investments in either new product lines or um, new capacity 
Uh, SAPI recently, at their mill in Skowhegan, Maine, put in almost a quarter billion dollars into a paper machine rebuild in a new uh, woodyard. Uh, mill in Woodland, Maine, uh, started a, up a couple brand new tissue machines. And uh, Nine Dragons, the owner of the Rumford, Maine mill, has announced and is currently taking steps to reopen uh, an idled pulp mill in Old Town, Maine. So for the first time in in a very long time, it's, it's positive news. Um, I think this is nothing but good for the industry. And one of the very good things we're seeing is a diversification of products. For a long time, this region has made communication paper. So something that your magazine is printed on, something that an annual report is printed on, uh, the mill, the storied mills in Millinocket, Maine, uh, produced directory paper. That's what's in a phone book, you know, for folks that remember those. Right. Uh, <laughs> so we're now seeing some real diversification. Yes, there's still an awful lot of printing and writing paper, but we're seeing investments in tissue, which tends to sell very locally because it's so much air, you don't want to ship it very far. And we're seeing some investments in specialty products. Like for example, if you, uh, well, if you come to Maine this summer and get a lobster roll, the piece of the grease lining that goes in the basket uh, is, is made here and uh, or the inside of a pet food bag is is made here. So those are those are really positive signs because what that means is we're not beholden to one particular change in consumer behavior, which is really what's hurt us significantly over the last decade. Alan Ryder from the Timber Resource Group went into more detail about what he's seen in Maine. I guess one of the good trends uh, looking into 2019 is the markets of the forest products. Uh, normally, it's either the softwood saw logs are good and the softwood pulp is bad, or the hardwood saw logs are good and hardwood pulp can can be bad. But looking into 2019, uh, the markets for most all species and and uh, and products are looking pretty good. Uh, spruce and fir on the softwood and white pine on the softwood, there's good demand and the market is good. Uh, hardwood logs, hardwood veneer logs, there's always a good market for. Hardwood saw logs, it's good. Uh, some species are better than others. And the hardwood pallet logs is is a pretty good market. And then you look at the, the pulp side, the spruce and fir and pine pulp, there's good demand for that. Uh, as well as a hardwood. There's good demand for hardwood pulp. And now to the complicated issue of biomass electricity, according to Eric Kingsley. The biomass is a really a volumetrically a very important uh, market throughout the region. It varies a little bit by where you are, but certainly uh, important. Um, we're seeing we're seeing continually dropping wholesale electricity prices in New England and New York. And even though that's not showing up on your bill, that matters significantly for um, for competing competing producers. So biomass electricity plants that are selling into a competitive market. Um, the reason those prices are dropping is largely because of natural gas, but also increase in in wind, increase in solar, 
as well as some stabilization of uh, some of the nuclear plants. So there are a lot of other generators out there generating for less, and that makes it challenging to operate a biomass plant. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen both Maine, both the Maine and New Hampshire legislatures take some steps to support uh, biomass plants. Of course, biomass plants are very important for the the local economy. Um, you know, really, whenever a truckload of wood shows up at a biomass plant to make electricity, a truckload, uh, <laughs> something like a truckload, very small mm -hmm. truckload of money leaves and stays right there in the economy, as opposed to when you're purchasing natural gas from Marcellus Shale or somewhere else where that money is largely disappearing to another region. So biomass plants are really important as local, local economic engines. They're very important for forestry. They're important for their suppliers. They are facing fundamentally uh, some some fundamental and really long-term life-threatening economic challenges. Not entirely sure how all that works out, but I would say states are, are thinking and trying to be creative. So that's on the negative side, and that's the big standalone biomass. What we are seeing a lot of positives in, some real pluses, is uh, either uh, customer sited, so for example, the sawmill uh, or uh, a school or a university, but customer sited combined heat and power, so or or simply heat for smaller installations. So using wood to heat a school, using wood to heat and power a university, using uh, wood at a sawmill, or a pellet mill, and we're seeing more and more of those projects, and that's very positive, and I think an area where we're gonna see some growth over the next year and, and years. Um, unfortunately, with those facilities, you're talking uh, thousands or tens of thousands of tons a year, and not hundreds of thousands of tons a year, so one new market doesn't offset a, a lost biomass plant. And onto the topic on everyone's mind this year employment. You know, no shock. I'm now um, 50 years old. I started in the industry when I was 25. And for the entire time I've been in the in the industry, the sort of the average age of loggers that I've interacted with has been about a decade older than me, which was absolutely fine when I was 25, and is starting to become troubling now that I'm 50. And I'm really concerned about what's going to happen when I'm 60. If, they're, if the average age of the loggers is still a decade in front of me, we've got some fundamental problems. So we're facing a worker shortage. And we're not alone, but in a strong economy, people that can operate equipment have an awful lot of choices. One of them being op work in the woods. But I think we all know that um, there are other opportunities some of which might be viewed as more stable, uh, more lucrative. So that's that's certainly a problem. We're um, over in New York. We've got Paul Smith's here in Maine through the community college. We have some great uh, professional logger training programs that sort of take people from uh, interest in the industry all the way through um, operating machinery and having some real time in the seat working. 
That's fantastic, and that's a great start. Say the piece that probably needs to be paired with that over time is uh, logging is really two separate things. One is the operation, and second is how do you run a low margin, capital intensive, always changing, uh, seasonally affected business. And we're I think we're, we've made some great steps in training operators. And the next step is to find, train, nurture, mentor those folks that are going to be the next set of leaders in the in the logging industry. Brian Sowers, the president of Treeline, explained how none of these sectors stand alone in success or failure. Well, I think 2019, I'm hoping, will be a year for, you know, the you, people talk about the the wood, woods industry being a three-legged stool. So you've got the mills, the landowners, and the contractors, the which would be the suppliers. So you need all three legs to be strong, and you need the mills to be strong, and the landowners need to be strong, and the contractors need to be strong. And if one leg weak gets weak, then obviously the stool you know will fall over. That's what was happening in the last couple of years. The you know the the suppliers. The, the suppliers really, really got hurt bad in the last couple of years. The contractors just uh, terrible lost, you know, lost a lot of suppliers, lost a lot of equity, lost a lot of money, a lot, of, you know, and, and the mills, I think some of the mills in the past have lost a lot of money at, at different times. So what I'm hoping in 2019 with this, you know, with everything being so fresh on our mind, I'm hoping that all three legs will work really hard to find a way to what look out for each other. John McNulty, president of Seven Islands Land Company, echoed both of these folks and explained what he and his company are doing to invest in their employees. Well, there's there's certainly 2019. I mean, that we're we're already jumping right in the middle of the changes that are occurring um, really with the uh, labor force is our biggest challenge that we see going forward. Um I mean, the unemployment rate in Maine is like 3.5%. Uh, there's a whole demographic change. Uh, the number, the, the kids coming out of high school and, um, you know, not aren't really looking at getting into the woods. Um, there are opportunities, great opportunities, for anyone who wants to really, uh, you know, jump into that lifestyle. Uh, but that's not something that really interests a lot of kids nowadays. So that's a challenge. We've got trucking issues that are, um, it's, a lack, it's not really a lack of trucks, it's a lack of truck drivers. Right. And, you know, that's, that all falls in line with harvesting, <clears throat> lack of harvesting um, labor force as well. And so there's, you have to walk this, this line between, uh, you know, just throwing money at it doesn't going to attract people to come and work in the woods. So right. we have to look at other ways, other ways of trying to, get people in the seat of the machine and uh, to get the type of work done we want done. And how are... We're... We actually, there's a... Uh, there is some training programs going on in northern Maine, um, both at the... I think it's at one of the local high schools, but also uh, James... Uh, J.D. Irving has um, a program, and they've... We're working with them to try to facilitate an expansion of uh, participation. If we can get three or four additional people into that program, uh, that puts more operators out into the workforce in Northern Maine and everyone benefits. 
because you know if we can't if we can't have someone in a seat um, producing stud wood for our commitment to the stud wood mill in Portage, I mean in uh, Nashville, uh, then Irving's you know we're going to fall short on on getting the wood out. So it's um, everyone's working hard in that regard to make the um, work environment more attractive, um, state of the art machinery, making sure that. We have good accommodations out in the big woods. You know, we, we just built a, a big new camp for our crew, for our foresters, and we've moved out of, yeah, in uh, right 70, you know, on Ross Lake, 70 miles from Ashland. And that's really designed to, <clears throat> to improve our living situations because we even have difficulty in keeping foresters out. Employment affects the whole industry, but trucking is particularly impacted, says Kingsley. Trucking, not just for our industry, but for all industries, is, is a problem. The, the American Trucking Association says that right now we're short about 50,000 truckers. And uh, I did a little digging to figure out what 50,000 looks like, because that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. But it's the entire population, you know, every man, woman, child in Burlington, Vermont. If they were suddenly to become truckers, we'd still be short truckers on a national level. So... And I'm not suggesting that all the kids in Burlington should start driving. Um, but, you know, just to, to help us put it in perspective, I think that's a good visual. So how can we address that? One is we need to acknowledge that that's a real problem. There are some public policy things, for example, increased weight limits, which are controversial, exist in some places, but allow you to uh, move the same amount of volume on fewer loads. So... That's certainly one public policy piece that can help address that. Another piece is right now insurance, well, this isn't really public policy, but insurance regulations uh, make it challenging for younger drivers to really enter before they're, um, before they're 25. Current laws don't allow drivers under 21 to cross state lines, which in an area with small states becomes a big deal. You know, I talked to a landowner in, a major landowner in New Hampshire, and even going from their land in New Hampshire to many of their markets in New Hampshire, the logical way to go is through Maine or uh, or Vermont, and they can't do that with younger drivers. That's something that can be addressed. There are um, obviously an awful lot of folks over the last years and currently that have uh, served our country, uh, gone to the Middle East, driven trucks in uh, conditions that are far more dangerous than anything we find on the highways of the Northeast and uh, making sure that they get credit for the, the, work, the time that they've spent in the seat driving trucks uh, as they go through their licensing process would be helpful. And lastly, there's something the industry can do and I think is will become a bigger and bigger uh, factor going forward. And that is mill turn times. When a driver comes into a mill unloads and gets back on the road quickly, that's another load that can be done with that same driver, as opposed to that driver sitting there for uh, 60, 90 minutes waiting for his or her turn to unload. So I think we're going to see an increased premium pay placed by loggers and, and landowners, really any suppliers, uh, on the ability of a mill to get folks in uh, unloaded and turn them around. That's always been important, 
But we're, when we're at the beginning of a trucking crisis, that's very important. Brian Sowers spoke to the impact transportation challenges have had in Maine. As a result of a lot of uh, loss of, of our core, core business, we started replacing it with other types of transportation services that were in demand. Like, So now we have a flatbed division. We have uh, 10 trucks or so that are that are hauling flatbed. And we've also gotten involved with hauling um, uh, water tankers recently. So basically, the tra- you know transportation services nationwide are in demand, and we're we're kind of riding that wave a little bit. Similarly, sawmills and foreign trade are intrinsically linked, and when it comes to foreign trade, Kingsley says the future pretty much couldn't be more uncertain. Announcements of future dates should be viewed with great skepticism. Um, I, I don't know that that. Uh, this discussion is necessarily going to follow a calendar. And even if one's set out, it really doesn't mean much. What I would note is that logs and lumber, insofar as trade with China is concerned, are part of a much, much, much larger, huge geopolitical discussion about how the United States and China interact with each other as trading partners. And um, it's really, you know, unlike unlike our uh, the softwood lumber agreement with Canada, which is very clearly uniquely about the dynamics between the U.S. and Canada on logs and lumber. Uh, the Chinese trade war is about something hundreds or thousands of times larger and we're we're very small in that so it's i think it's important to understand that this exists in a larger context and is going to play out on its own schedule so what about less frequently talked about products like biofuel will that be a viable income stream in 2019 probably not say both kingsley and Ryder. yeah so i've been working on i've been working with different wood to liquid fuel manufacturers technology since about 2000 and for a while they've seemed on the verge of uh, commercial viability Um, i think we're now starting to see some peak their their head out and some some technologies may actually be viable for example uh, ensign has a bio oil facility in uh, in quebec a little north of us that is actually supplying um, supplying bio oil, so wood-based liquid fuel to heat a hospital in Conway, New Hampshire. We're, so that's a real product that's not that exists somewhere other than a PowerPoint where a lot of these exist. The last few years has seen an awful lot of folks kicking around Maine and I think uh, New, not, I don't think I know New York, uh, New Hampshire, perhaps Vermont as well probably the lake states, looking at what are the opportunities here, where can we site a plant. Uh, All that said, no one's actually taken the steps to do or site anything yet, so that suggests we're not quite there. One issue, and this is a public policy issue, but one issue that this region faces is the federal renewable fuel standard that acts as a policy support mechanism for for what they call advanced biofuels, but that includes wood to, wood to liquid fuels, so wood to ethanol, 
wood to lavulanic acid, wood to bio oil. All of that policy significantly favors plantation grown uh, feedstocks, which really aren't the, well, they barely exist in the region. I know that there's some, uh, certainly uh, historically, there are some older plantations in New York that, that don't exist uh, in other parts of the region, but really that's it's a de minimis part of our, our supply chain. And I think until that is addressed, it's gonna be hard to site, uh, to site facilities here. Yeah, the University of Maine has done a lot of extension or extensive research on that, and I see that maybe not in the near future, but in the in the a few years down the road. Uh, the big biomass plants are struggling all over New England, and so I think a good thing is you know there's more and more uh, small wood-fired facilities, for example, facilities uh, using wood chips or pellets, uh, hospitals and schools and town offices and that sort of thing. So I think if that's a good bright spot, I think we'll see more and more of those smaller ones compared to the great, you know, the bigger biomass facilities. And lastly, we felt it important to understand where the industry is moving on forest certification. Whenever I talk to a uh foresters and loggers about certification. A decade ago, it was, depending on who you were, well, there were a lot of strongly held opinions, but it was, you know, a huge burden that was going to be a big problem for some folks. It was uh, a great opportunity to uh, access new markets. It was something that landowners and, and loggers would be receiving a significant premium for. Uh, across the the product of the spectrum of products, I would say every one of those strongly held opinions was perhaps too strongly held. Uh, none of them turned out to really be right. You know, it's now sort of the standard for large landowners. I think most uh, foresters, most loggers at this point are very aware of the certification standards and what's needed to comply with those. Uh, the challenge remains bringing in uh, small, non-industrial, you know, family forest landowners, folks that uh, really enter the marketplace about once a generation and then aren't really active in the intervening years. So that's a, both a challenge and a growth opportunity. And then I think, you know, there's really two main certification standards. One is PEFC, which includes uh, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, and then for smaller holdings, the American Tree Farm System. There's also the Forest Stewardship Council, a separate standard, FSC. Um, say there's a, a question mark, I think it's probably the, the correct thing to say, about the future uh, enrollment in FSC. 2020 is bringing uh, new standard uh, FSC certified parcels will need to conform to a new standard starting in 2020. Certainly some of the folks that uh, I talked to that are FSC certified have some concerns about that standard and, and the cost of compliance. Thanks for leading us through all these important topics, Eric. If listeners would like to learn more about these topics, check out this month's issue of the Northern Logger Magazine. 
Thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. Thanks for supporting this publication, and thank you all for the good work that you do. Have you considered placing an advertisement in the Northern Logger magazine for years? Or are you an advertiser already? Well, here's the thing. This podcast has gotten really popular. Faster than I even imagined, honestly. After five short months of getting the show off to a fun, fascinating, and at times wobbly start, we have over 2,500 listeners streaming and downloading an episode. And it's still growing. It's a bit mind-boggling. But I think it speaks to our great new podcast, the amazing listenership, and how loyal our Forest Products family is. Consider the difference that an ad for your sawmill, dealership, or even a PSA for your organization could have, and feel free to call the Northern Logger offices to talk about this new way of reaching out to customers.